This is the SFF Audio Podcast. This week's podcast is a recording of The Temple by H.P. Lovecraft. It's read for us by Mirko Stauk. He and I will be talking about it with Julie Hoverson afterwards. The Temple by H.P. Lovecraft Manuscript found on the coast of Yucatan On August 20, 1917, I, Karl Heinrich Graf von Altberg Ehrenstein, Lieutenant Commander in the Imperial German Navy and in charge of the submarine U-29, deposit this bottle and record in the Atlantic Ocean at a point to me unknown, but probably about north latitude 20 degrees, West, longitude 35 degrees, where my ship lies disabled on the ocean floor. I do so because of my desire to set certain unusual facts before the public, a thing I shall not in all probability survive to accomplish in person, since the circumstances surrounding me are as menacing as they are extraordinary, and involve not only the hopeless crippling of the U-29, but the impairment of my iron German will in a manner of most disastrous. On the afternoon of June 18, as reported by wireless to the U-61 bound for Kiel, we torpedoed the British freighter Victory, New York to Liverpool, in north latitude 45 degrees 16 minutes, west longitude 28 degrees 34 minutes, permitting the crew to leave in boats in order to obtain a good cinema view for the Admiralty records. The ship sank quite picturesquely, bow first, the stern rising high out of the water, whilst the hull shot down perpendicularly to the bottom of the sea. Our camera missed nothing, and I regret that so fine a reel of film should never reach Berlin. After that, we sank the lifeboats with our guns and submerged. When we rose to the surface about sunset, a seaman's body was found on the deck, hands gripping the railing in curious fashion. The poor fellow was young, rather dark and very handsome probably an Italian or Greek, and undoubtedly of the Victory's crew. He had evidently sought refuge on the very ship which had been forced to destroy his own, one more victim of the unjust war of aggression which the English pig-dogs are waging upon the fatherland. Our men searched him for souvenirs and found in his coat pocket a very odd bit of ivory, cuffed to represent a youth's head, crowned with laurel. My fellow officer, Lieutenant Clens, believed that the thing was of great age and artistic value, so took it from the man for himself. How it had ever come into the possession of a common sailor, neither he nor I could imagine. As the dead man was thrown overboard, there occurred two incidents which created much disturbance amongst the crew. The fellow's eyes had been closed, but in the dragging of his body to the rail they were jarred open and many seemed to entertain a queer delusion that they gazed steadily and mockingly at Schmidt and Zimmer, who were bent over the corpse. The boatswain Müller, an elderly man who would have known better had he not been a superstitious illustration swine, became so excited by this impression that he watched the body in the water, and swore that after it sank a little, it drew its limbs into a swimming position and sped away to the south under the waves. 
Clancy and I did not like this displays of peasant ignorance and severely reprimanded the man, particularly Müller. The next day, a very troublesome situation was created by the indisposition of some of the crew. They were evidently suffering from the nervous strain of our long voyage and had had bad dreams. Several seemed quite dazed and stupid, and after satisfying myself that they were not faking their weakness, I excused them from their duties. The sea was rather rough, so we descended to a depth where the waves were less troublesome. Here we were comparatively calm, despite a somewhat puzzling southward current which we could not identify from our oceanographic charts. The moans of the sick men were decidedly annoying, but since they did not appear to demoralize the rest of the crew, we did not resort to extreme measures. It was our plan to remain where we were and intercept the liner Dacia, mentioned in information from agents in New York. In the early evening we rose to the surface and found the sea less heavy. The smoke of a battleship was on the northern horizon, but our distance and ability to submerge made us safe. What worried us more was the talk of Boatswain Müller, which grew wilder as night came on. He was in a detestably childish state and babbled of some illusion of dead bodies drifting past the undersea portholes. Bodies which looked at him intensely, and which he recognized in spite of bloating as having seen dying during some of our victorious German exploits, and he said that the young man we had found and tossed overboard was their leader. This was very gruesome and abnormal, so we confined Müller in irons and had him soundly whipped. The men were not placed at his punishment, but discipline was necessary. We also denied the request of a delegation headed by seamen Zimmer that the curious carved ivory head be cast into the sea. On June 20, seamen Bohm and Schmidt, who had been ill the day before, became violently insane. I regretted that no physician was included in our complement of officers, since German lives are precious. But the constant ravings of two concerning a terrible curse were most subversive of discipline, so drastic steps were taken. The crew accepted the event in a sullen fashion, but it seemed to quiet Müller, who thereafter gave us no trouble. In the evening we released him, and he went about his duties silently. In the week that followed we were all very nervous, watching for the Dacia. The tension was aggravated by the disappearance of Müller and Zimmer, who undoubtedly committed suicide as a result of the fears which had seemed to harass them, though they were not observed in the act of jumping overboard. I was rather glad to be rid of Müller, for even his silence had unfavorably affected the crew. Everyone seemed inclined to be silent now, as though holding a secret fear. Many were ill, but none made a disturbance. Lieutenant Cleanser chafed under the strain and was annoyed by the merest trifles, such as the school of dolphins which gathered about the U-29 in increasing numbers, and the growing intensity of that southward current which was not on our chart. It at length became apparent that we had missed the Dacia altogether. Such failures are not uncommon, and we were more pleased than disappointed, since our return to Wilhelmshaven was now in order. 
At noon, June 28, we turned northeastward, and despite of some rather comical entanglements with the unusual masses of dolphins, were soon on the way. The explosion in the engine room at 2 p.m. was wholly a surprise. No defect in the machinery or carelessness in the man had been noticed, yet without warning the ship was wrecked from end to end with a colossal shock. Lieutenant Klenzer hurried to the engine room, finding the fuel tank and most of the mechanism shattered, and engineers Rabe and Schneider instantly killed. Our situation had suddenly become grave indeed, for though the chemical air regenerators were intact, and though we could use the devices for raising and submerging the ship and opening the hatches as long as compressed air and storage batteries might hold out, we were powerless to propel or guide the submarine. To seek rescue in the lifeboats would be to deliver ourselves into the hands of enemies unreasonably embittered against our great German nation, and our wireless had failed ever since the victory affair to put us in touch with a fellow U-boat of the Imperial Navy. From the hour of the accident till July 2nd we drifted constantly to the south, almost without plans and encountering no vessel. Dolphins still encircled the U-29, a somewhat remarkable circumstance considering the distance we had covered. On the morning of July 2nd we sighted a warship flying American colors, and the men became very restless in their desire to surrender. Finally, Lieutenant Klenzer had to shoot a scene name named Traube, who urged this un-German act with a special violence. This quieted the crew for the time, and we submerged unseen. The next afternoon a dense flock of seabirds appeared from the south, and the ocean began to heave ominously. Closing our hatches we awaited developments until we realized that we must either submerge or be swamped in the mounting waves. Our air pressure and electricity were diminishing, and we wished to avoid all unnecessary use of our slender mechanical resources. But in this case there was no choice. We did not descend far and when after several hours the sea was calmer we decided to return to the surface. Here, however, a new trouble developed, for the ship failed to respond to our direction in spite of all that the mechanics could do. As the men grew more frightened at this undersea imprisonment, some of them began to mutter again about Lieutenant Clancy's ivory image, but the sight of an automatic pistol calmed them. We kept the poor devils as busy as we could, tinkering at the machinery, even when we knew it was useless. Klenz and I usually slept at different times, and it was during my sleep, about 5 a.m. July the 4th, that a general mutiny broke loose. The six remaining pigs of seamen, suspecting that we were lost, had suddenly burst into a mad fury at our refusal to surrender to the Yankee battleship two days before and were in a delirium of cursing and destruction. They wrought like the animals they were, and broke instruments and furniture indiscriminately, screaming about such nonsense as the curse of the ivory image and the dark dead youth who looked at them and swam away. Lieutenant Klenzer seemed paralyzed and inefficient, as one might expect of a soft womanish Rhinelander. I shot all six men, for it was necessary, and made sure that none remained alive. We expelled the bodies through the double hatches and were alone on the U-29. 
Cleanser seemed very nervous and drank heavily. It was decided that we remain alive as long as possible, using the large stock of provisions and chemical supply of oxygen, none of which had suffered from the crazy antics of those swinehound seamen. Our compasses, depth gorges, and other delicate instruments were ruined, so that henceforth our only reckoning would be guesswork, based on our watches, the calendar, and our apparent drift as judged by any objects we might spy through the portholes or from the conning tower. Fortunately, we had storage batteries still capable of long use, both for interior lightning and for the searchlight. We often cast a beam around the ship, but saw only dolphins, swimming parallel to our drifting course. I was scientifically interested in those dolphins, for though the ordinary Delphinus delphis is a cetacean mammal unable to subsist without air, I watched one of the swimmers closely for two hours and did not see him alter his submerged condition. With the passage of time, Clens and I decided that we were still drifting south, meanwhile sinking deeper and deeper. We noted the marine fauna and flora and read much on the subject in the books I had carried with me for spare moments. I could not help observing, however, the inferior scientific knowledge of my companion. His mind was not Prussian, but given to imaginings and speculations which have no value. The fact of our coming death affected him curiously, and he would frequently pray in remorse over the men, women, and children we had sent to the bottom forgetting that all things are noble which serve the German state. After a time he became noticeably unbalanced, gazing for hours at his ivory image and weaving fanciful stories of the lost and forgotten things under the sea. Sometimes, as a psychological experiment, I would lead him on in these wanderings and listen to his endless poetical quotations and tales of sunken ships. I was very sorry for him, for I dislike to see a German suffer, but he was not a good man to die with. For myself, I was proud, knowing how the fatherland would revere my memory and how my sons would be taught to be men like me. On August 9 we espied the ocean floor and sent a powerful beam from the searchlight over it. It was a vast undulating plain, mostly covered with seaweed and strewn with the shells of small mollusks, here and there were a slimy object of puzzling contour, draped with weeds and encrusted with barnacles which cleanse, declared must be ancient ships lying in their graves. He was puzzled by one thing, a peak of solid matter, protruding above the ocean bed nearly four feet at its apex, about two feet thick, with flat sides and smooth upper surfaces, which met at a very obtuse angle. I called the peak a bit of outcropping rock, but Clens thought he saw carvings on it. After a while he began to shudder and turned away from the scene as if frightened. Yet could give no explanation save that he was overcome with the vastness, darkness, remoteness, antiquity and mystery of the oceanic abysses. His mind was tired. But I am always a German, and was quick to notice two things that the U-29 was standing the deep-sea pressure splendidly, and that the peculiar dolphins were still about us, even at a depth where the existence of high organisms is considered impossible by most naturalists. 
that I had previously overestimated our depth, I was sure. But nonetheless, we must still be deep enough to make these phenomena remarkable. Our southward speed, as gauged by the ocean floor, was about as I had estimated from the organisms passed at higher levels. It was 3.15 p.m., August 12th, that poor Clens went wholly mad. He had been in the conning tower, using the searchlight, when I saw him bound into the library compartment where I sat reading, and his face at once betrayed him. I will repeat here what he said, underlining the words he emphasized. He is calling. He is calling. I hear him. We must go. As he spoke, he took his ivory image from the table, pocketed it, and seized my arm in an effort to drag me up the companionway to the deck. In a moment I understood that he meant to open the hatch and plunge with me into the water outside, a vagary of suicidal and homicidal mania for which I was scarcely prepared. As I hung back and attempted to soothe him, he grew more violent, saying, Come now, do not wait until later. It is better to repent and be forgiven than to defy and be condemned. Then I tried the opposite way of the soothing plan and told him he was mad, pitifully demented. But he was unmoved and cried, If I am mad, it is mercy. May the gods pity the man who in his callousness can remain sane to the hideous end. Come and be mad whilst he still calls with mercy. This outburst seemed to relieve a pressure in his brain, for as he finished he grew much milder, asking me to let him depart alone if I would not accompany him. My course at once became clear. He was a German, but only a Rhinelander and a commoner and he was now a potentially dangerous madman. By complying with his suicidal request, I could immediately free myself from one who was no longer a companion but a menace. I asked him to give me the ivory image before he went, but this request brought from him such uncanny laughter that I did not repeat it. Then I asked him if he wished to leave any keepsake or lock of hair for his family in Germany in case I should be rescued. But again he gave me that strange laugh. So as he climbed the ladder, I went to the levers, and allowing proper time intervals operated the machinery which sent him to his death. After I saw that he was no longer in the boat, I threw the searchlight around the water in an effort to obtain a last glimpse of him. Since I wished to ascertain whether the water pressure would flatten him like theoretically should, or whether the body would be unaffected like those extraordinary dolphins. I did not, however, succeed in finding my late companion, for the dolphins were massed thickly and obscuringly about the conning tower. That evening I regretted that I had not taken the ivory image surreptitiously from poor Clancy's pocket as he left, for the memory of it fascinated me. I could not forget the youthful, beautiful head with its leafy crown, though I am not by nature an artist. I was also sorry that I had no one with whom to converse. Clancy, though not my mental equal, was much better than no one. I did not sleep well that night and wondered exactly when the end would come. Surely I had little enough chance of rescue. The next day I ascended to the conning tower and commenced the customary searchlight explorations. Northward, 
The view was much the same as it had been all the four days since we had sighted the bottom, but I perceived that the drifting of the U-29 was less rapid. As I swung the beam around the south, I noticed that the ocean floor ahead fell away in a marked declivity and bore curiously regular blocks of stone in certain places, disposed as if in accordance with definite patterns. The boat did not at once descend to match the greater ocean depth, so I was soon forced to adjust the searchlight to cast a sharply downward beam. Owing to the abruptness of the change, a wire was disconnected, which necessitated a delay of many minutes for repairs. But at length the light streamed on again, flooding the marine valley below me. I am not given to emotion of any kind, but my amazement was very great when I saw what lay revealed in that electrical glow, and yet as one reared in the best culture of Prussia I should not have been amazed, for geology and tradition alike tell us of great transpositions in oceanic and continental areas. What I saw was an extent and elaborate array of ruined edifices, all of magnificent though unclassified architecture and in various stages of preservation. Most appeared to be of marble, gleaming widely in the rays of the searchlight, and the general plan was of a large city at the bottom of a narrow valley with numerous isolated temples and villas on the steep slopes above. Roofs were fallen and columns were broken, but there still remained an air of immemorally ancient splendor which nothing could efface. Confronted at last with the Atlantis I had formerly deemed largely a myth, I was the most eager of explorers. At the bottom of that valley a river once had flowed, for as I examined the scene more closely I beheld the remains of stone and marble bridges and sea walls and terraces and embankments once verdant and beautiful. In my enthusiasm I became nearly as idiotic and sentimental as poor Clenze, and was very tardy in noticing that the southward current has ceased at last, allowing the U-29 to settle slowly down upon the sunken city as an aeroplane settles upon a town of the upper earth. I was slow, too, in realizing that the school of unusual dolphins had vanished. In about two hours the boat rested in a paved plaza close to the rocky walls of the valley. On one side I could view the entire city as it sloped from the plaza down to the old river bank. On the other side, in startling proximity, I was confronted by the richly ornate and perfectly preserved façade of a great building, evidently a temple, hollowed from the solid rock. Of the original workmanship of this titanic thing I can only make conjectures. The façade of immense magnitude apparently covers a continuous hollow recess, for its windows are many and widely distributed. In the center yawns a great open door reached by an impressive flight of steps and surrounded by exquisite carvings like the figures of bacchanals in relief. Foremost of all are the great columns and frieze, both decorated with sculptures of inexpressible beauty obviously portraying idealist pastoral scenes and processions of priests and priestesses bearing strange ceremonial devices in adoration of a radiant god. The art is of the most phenomenal perfection, largely Hellenic in idea, yet strangely individual. 
It imparts an impression of terrible antiquity, as though it were the remotest rather than the immediate ancestor of Greek art. Nor can I doubt that every detail of this massive product was fashioned from the virgin hillside rock of our planet. It is probably a part of the valley wall, though how the vast interior was ever excavated I cannot imagine. Perhaps a cavern or series of caverns furnished the nucleus. Neither age or submersions has corroded the pristine grandeur of this awful fane. For fane indeed it must be, and today, after thousands of years, it rests untarnished and inviolate in the endless night and silence of an ocean chasm. I cannot reckon the number of hours I spent in gazing at the sunken city, with its buildings, arches, statues and bridges, and the colossal temple with its beauty and mystery. Though I knew that death was near, my curiosity was consuming, and I threw the searchlight's beam about in eager quest. The shaft of light permitted me to learn many details, but refused to show anything within the gaping door of the rock-hewn temple. And after a time I turned off the current, conscious of the need of conserving power. The rays were now perceptibly dimmer than they had been during the weeks of drifting, and as if sharpened by the coming deprivation of light, my desire to explore the watery secrets grew. I, a German, should be the first who tread those eon-forgotten ways. I produced and examined a deep-sea diving suit of joint metal and experimented with the portable light and air regenerator. Though I should have trouble in managing the double hatches alone, I believe I could overcome all obstacles with my scientific skill and actually walk about the dead city in person. On August 16, I effected an exit from the U-29 and laboriously made my way through the ruined and mud-choked streets to the ancient river. I found no skeletons or other human remains, but gleaned the wealth of archaeological lore from sculptures and coins. Of this I cannot now speak save to utter my awe at a culture in the full noon of glory when cave-dwellers roamed Europe and the Nile flowed unwatched to the sea. Others, guided by this manuscript, if it shall ever be found, must unfold the mysteries at which I can only hint. I returned to the boat as my electric batteries grew feeble, resolved to explore the rock temple on the following day. On the 17th, as my impulse to search out the mystery of the temple waxed still more insistent, a great disappointment befell me, for I found that the materials needed to replenish the portable light had perished in the mutiny of those pigs in July. My rage was unbounded, yet my German sense forbade me to venture unprepared into an utterly black interior which might prove the lair of some indescribable marine monster or a labyrinth of passages from whose windings I could never extricate myself. All I could do was to turn on the waning searchlight of the U-29 and with its aid walk up the temple steps and study the exterior carvings. The shaft of light entered the door at an upward angle, and I peered in, to see if I could glimpse anything, but all in vain. Not even the roof was visible, and though I took a step or two inside after testing the floor with a staff, I dared not go farther. 
Moreover, for the first time in my life, I experienced the emotion of dread. I began to realize how some of poor Cleanse's mood had arisen, for as the temple drew me more and more, I feared its aqueous abysses with a blind and mounting terror. Returning to the submarine, I turned off the lights and sat thinking in the dark. Electricity must now be saved for emergencies. Saturday the 18th I spent in total darkness, tormented by thoughts and memories that threatened to overcome my German will. Klenze had gone mad and perished before reaching this sinister remnant of past unwholesomely remote and had advised me to go with him. Was indeed fate preserving my reason only to draw me irresistible to an end more horrible and unthinkable than any man has dreamed of? Clearly my nerves were sorely taxed, and I must cast off these impressions of weaker men. I could not sleep Saturday night, and turned on the lights regardless of the future. It was annoying that the electricity should not last out the air and provisions. I revived my thoughts of euthanasia, and examined my automatic pistol. Toward morning I must have dropped asleep with the lights on, for I awoke in darkness yesterday afternoon to find the batteries dead. I struck several matches in succession and desperately regretted the improvidence which had caused us long ago to use up the few candles we carried. After the fading of the last match I dared to waste, I sat very quietly without a light. As I considered the inevitable end, my mind ran over preceding events and developed a hitherto dormant impression which would have caused a weaker and more superstitious man to shudder. The head of the radiant god and the sculptures on the rock temple is the same as the carven bit of ivory which the dead sailor brought from the sea and which poor cleanser carried back into the sea. I was a little dazed by this coincidence, but did not become terrified. It is only the inferior thinker who hastens to explain the singular and the complex by the primitive shortcut of supernaturalism. The coincidence was strange, but I was too sound a reasoner to connect circumstances which admit of no logical connection, or to associate in any uncanny fashion the disastrous events which had led from the victory affair to my present plight. Feeling the need of more rest, I took a sedative and secured some more sleep. My nervous condition was reflected in my dreams, for I seemed to hear the cries of drowning persons and to see dead faces pressing against the portholes of the boat. And among the dead faces was the living, mocking face of the youth with the ivory image. I must be careful how I record my waking today, for I am unstrung, and much hallucination is necessarily mixed with fact. Psychologically, my case is most interesting, and I regret that it cannot be observed scientifically by a competent German authority. Upon opening my eyes, my first sensation was an overmastering desire to visit the rock temple, a desire which grew every instant, yet which I automatically sought to resist through some emotion of fear, which operated in the reverse direction. Next, there came to me the impression of light amidst the darkness of the dead batteries. 
and I seem to see a sort of phosphorescent glow in the water through the porthole which opened toward the temple. This aroused my curiosity, for I knew of no deep-sea organism capable of emitting such luminosity. But before I could investigate, there came a third impression, which, because of its irrationality, caused me to doubt the objectivity of anything my senses might record. It was an oral delusion, a sensation of rhythmic, melodic sound, as of some wild yet beautiful chant or choral hymn, coming from the outside through the absolutely soundproof hull of the U-29. Convinced of my psychological and nervous abnormality, I lighted some matches and poured a stiff dose of sodium bromide solution, which seemed to calm me to the extent of dispelling the illusion of sound. But the phosphorescence remained, and I had difficulty in repressing a childish impulse to go to the portholes and seek its source. It was horribly realistic, and I could soon distinguish by its aid the familiar objects around me, as well as the empty sodium bromide glass of which I had no former visual impression in its present location. The last circumstance made me ponder, and I crossed the room and touched the glass. It was indeed in the place where I seemed to see it. Now I knew that the light was either real or part of an hallucination so fixed and consistent that I could not hope to dispel it. So abandoning all resistance, I ascended to the conning tower to look for the luminous agency. Might it not actually be another U-boat, offering possibilities of rescue? It is well that the reader accept nothing which follows as objective truth, for since the events transcend natural law, they are necessarily the subjective and unreal creations of my overtaxed mind. When I attained the conning tower, I found the sea in general far less luminous than I had expected. There was no animal or vegetable phosphorescence about, and the city that sloped down the river was invisible in blackness. What I did see was not spectacular, not grotesque or terrifying, yet it removed my last vestige of trust in my consciousness. For the door and windows of the undersea temple hewn from the rocky hill were vividly aglow with a flickering radiance as from a mighty altar flame far within. Later incidents are chaotic. As I stared at the uncannily lighted door and windows, I became subject to most extravagant visions, visions so extravagant that I cannot even relate them. I fancied that I discerned objects in the temple, objects both stationary and moving, and seemed to hear again the unreal chant that had floated to me when I first awaked. And over all rose thoughts and fears which centered in the youth from the sea, and the ivory image whose carving was duplicated on the frieze and columns of the temple before me. I thought of poor Cleanse, and wondered where his body rested with the image he had carried back into the sea. He had warned me of something, and I had not heeded. But he was a soft-headed Rhinelander who went mad at troubles a Prussian could bear with ease. The rest is very simple. My impulse to visit and enter the temple has now become an explicable and imperious command, 
which ultimately cannot be denied. My own German will no longer control my acts, and volition is henceforward possible only in minor matters. Such madness it was which drove Cleanse to his death, bareheaded and unprotected in the ocean. But I am a Prussian and a man of sense, and will use to the last what little will I have. When first I saw that I must go, I prepared my diving suit, helmet and air regenerator for instant donning and immediately commenced to write this hurried chronicle in the hope that it may some day reach the world. I shall seal the manuscript in a bottle and entrust it to the sea as I leave the U-29 forever. I have no fear, not even from the prophecies of the madman cleanser. What I have seen cannot be true, and I know that this madness of my own will at most lead only to suffocation when my air is gone. The light in the temple is a sheer delusion, and I shall die calmly, like a German, in the black and forgotten depths. This demoniac laughter which I hear as I write comes only from my own weakening brain. So I will carefully don my diving suit and walk boldly up the steps into that primal shrine that silent secret of unfathomed waters and uncounted years. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, this is Julie from 19 Nocturne Boulevard. And I am Mirko. All right, uh, so which of us is the womanish Rhinelander? <laughs> <laughs> I'm a Rhinelander, but I'm not womanish, I suppose. <laughs> I, I have to pick up the Encyclopedia Britannica where... Lovecraft looked up everything about the Rhineland because it must be wrong. We are pretty manly, you know? <laughs> well, not according to the Prussian uh, commander of this uh, submarine. Yep. Yeah, that's it's Prussian. A, it's an old argument, I know. <laughs> <laughs> he actually has lots of bad things to say about everybody in the crew. Uh, the Alsatians were... Uh, what? Superstitious swine. Superstitious <laughs> swine. And, and I think the Alsatian and Julie, your, your adaptation... Uh, and he say, "I'm from the city." <laughs> no, there's a there's a few different things. The Alsatians, well, I can't remember which ones are which of the of the lesser crew members, but I I actually played the woman of Shrinelander. So <laughs> I know <laughs> that's why I was asking the question. Actually, I think you, you did, I forgot that that was you. Actually, I didn't realize it wasn't a man. So uh, yes. kudos to your your uh, transsexual voice change however you did that it was very um effective well, th thank you so much I, they just caught me first thing in the morning when i'm all husky <laughs> <laughs> uh -huh. well um i i really like this story i didn't know about it before Mirko uh suggested he record it um when did you guys first encounter it well i was uh, when i i did a bunch of readings of lovecraft stories for for a friend, but also for practice. And that was how I learned how to do audio mixing. So they're all up on my website, but they're all a little bit uh, at beginning. They're way below what I do now as mixing abilities. Right. But um, I was sort of picking random stories, and that one came up. And since I had been working on a generic German accent for my character that I played at the Renaissance Fairs, I decided it would be a good one to practice with. <laughs> What character you 
do you play at a Renaissance fair? I, I play a German merchant, and I do it because I love German Renaissance costumes with the big crazy hats. <laughs> yeah, and... we're still wearing it. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, you know, and I kept telling people at Renaissance fairs that the Lance Connects were the original gangsters because they wore lots of gold chains, they were tougher <laughs> than anybody else out there, and they let their underwear hang out as a fashion statement. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you get a picture of how we are running around in Germany. We still do. We are very old tradition, you know. <laughs> so, but, but it was very fun, and and so. Um, <laughs> When I recorded it, uh, you know, it was it was interesting trying different things like that. But then I, after recording the story, I had a driving need to adapt it for my show once my show got started. And I think my adaptation actually is quite good. I I quite agree with you, and um, I'm I'm not sure I'm not sure uh, how much I would have appreciated it had I not read the story first. But after reading the story, this is the way I experienced it, I think that your adaptation is almost exactly the way it should be done. It's, it, it uses the method. You don't, you don't like radically change the, the format, right? It's still a letter in a bottle. Uh, it's still um, told in sequence, but it's also got uh, little collections of narration all the way through to give the captain's point of view as the events unfold. Well, the, the narration is effectively the log he was keeping that he yeah. threw in the bottle, and it gives me a chance to bridge, you know, scene changes and things. Mm -hmm. And I did a few things that I, you know, I did change things as necessary for an audio format, which was I really... any radical changes? Oh, there actually is one. What's Which that? is that um, in the original story, Kinza, the last crewman he's with, dies about halfway through the story, and he spends half the story alone. And I keep Kinza alive till very nearly the end. So that, oh, yes, because there's true. a huge difference between dialogue and one person talking for 15 minutes. <laughs> true enough. But it it works. It's seamless, you know, and it yeah. it, it it actually. Well, plus the fact the reason I did want to play Kinza is because he gets the best freakouts. Yeah, he. he so, uh, this this story is actually really interesting. What's not explained? Almost nothing's explained, right? How how come so little in this story is explained? There's there's uh, the boat gets shot, no shoots shoots another ship, and they. Gun all the lifeboats. Uh, they discover somebody has been clinging to the the railing of the of the submarine when they come back up, and he's dead. And he's got a little charm, and they steal the charm, and then seemingly they're cursed. Mm -hmm. so, so what's yeah. the what's going on that's not explained by the very practical and science-minded uh, captain of the of the ship? Well, the, the curse pretty much covers it, but um, one interesting thing, speaking of the practical and science-minded captain, is he's, you know, we, we all think of insanity as being the person who sees crazy stuff when there's no crazy stuff there, mm -hmm. but it's equally insane to refuse to see crazy stuff when it's slapping you right in the face. Mm. Um, in, in the game Call of Cthulhu, they actually created an insanity yeah. To cover this. And it was called Panzaism. 
no, 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 no. After Sancho Panza from right, Don right, Quixote. Right. Yeah. And um, and I, I'm pretty sure that was what it was, and and the idea was it was it was an insanity whereby you will rationalize away everything. Right. And yeah. and um, and I'm pretty sure it was because of this story because this character is so unusual um, in the entire range of Lovecraft's characters. He stands out for a number of reasons as being so very different. Yeah, it really it makes you wonder what inspired this story. Well, I uh, I assume that it was it was based on you know uh, the current events of the uh, well just prior events in the in World War One you know the unrestricted submarine warfare, mm-hmm. etc. Yeah. Early in his life, Lovecraft at uh, 1915 he wrote a poem about um, the the U-boat war, and the poem is named "The Crime of Crimes" and it's. Pretty interesting because um, the Lusitania was a British passenger ship and was sunk by a German submarine on the 7th May 1915. And among the uh, 1,200 killed people were 228 Americans. But uh, the incident still did not persuade either the American people or the government to enter the war. And um, Lovecraft was pretty upset of this. Of this fact, and um, he wrote a stuff of, about it in his letters that he he still thinks this is a, a I mean, crime, right? Mm. Um, that German U-boats uh, and it was usual to with the German U-boat fleet they were attacking passenger and civil civilian ships, civil ships, civilian ships. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know. Civilian, yeah, right. And um, this this was reported in the newspapers, of course. So he he took it as a um, Yes, a, a source of it. But what I found interesting is the the excess of supernaturalism that appears there, because I think that his uh, description of the claustrophobia element, when he sits alone in the dark and there's something playing with his mind, this is so great, uh, so so good written, uh, r- good writing. I'm sorry, um, that I don't know why. He uh, just has this this excess of supernaturalism. He, he could dropped it, you know. In much the same way, the movie The Abyss could have left out the aliens and just had the people oh, yeah. going mm-hmm. crazy mm-hmm. due to the pressure. Yeah, right. But people, but people buy the buy the supernatural element. They they like that. That's what they. Even early on, I guess that's kind of where Lovecraft was really going. And, and this is one of his earlier stories, isn't it? Yeah, it's quite early. But, um, I, it, but I, I quite like the 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 unexplained part, portions of it. You know, what the hell are those dolphins doing out there? That they <laughs> they're not dolphins, methinks. Uh, and no. are they guiding the are they guiding the boat there? Because yeah, sure, but it's not it, it, it's not ever explained, right? So we assume no. that when he goes into that that uh, temple. Uh, he's he's going to get some sort of uh, explanation or some sort of horrible visitation. Explanation or not, we know he's going to die. Yes, but yeah. how is he going to die? And right? that's that's part of what leaves you wondering that he's pushing forward no matter what. And this is one of the ways he really stands out from a lot of, I mean, from every other Lovecraft hero almost, is that this is an action, this is an action hero almost. Yeah. Well, he's, uh, he's, he's a man, one. action and protagonist. 
and but he's he's a he's a tough guy he's a manly man as opposed to all the all the oh i'm an academic and i've got a little i've got a little asthma and i can't run you know guys i I got one exception i got one exception to mention this uh, um i forgot his name shame on me the police officer in the horror at red hook he's also pretending to be a hot yeah right (laughs) (laughs) but still he faints they all faint the next closest you probably get is um oh well it would be uh Herbert uh, uh West reanimated. No, no, actually I would say it would be um Professor Rice in the Dunwich Horror. He's the one who brings the big game rifle. He's the younger of the three professors. Yeah, right. Or or this uh, policeman if you Oh no, it's Morgan, my fault. Morgan. But anyway. <laughs> The three, the three parts of Call of Cthulhu. There is um, Inspector Regress, mm-hmm. who, who who invades the uh, the cultist meeting, and he's also a tough guy, badass. Yeah, that's true. There's a few of them, but this is the main. I mean, the one who's a narrator, and I mean, and this is also a story essentially told in first person from his viewpoint, mm-hmm. which does you know, I mean, Lovecraft does that fairly often, but usually it starts with. I'm now afraid of cold drafts because of this horrible thing that happened to me. <laughs> and instead, this guy's like Sunset Boulevard. I'm dead, but here's my story. <laughs> yeah, he, he does have... I mean, you can certainly reject his, his philosophy of life or death, mm-hmm. but uh, it seems pretty damn consistent. Uh, you know, from beginning to end, you know, he says... Uh, these stupid superstitious uh, Alsatian uh, swine, he calls them. Um, you know, he's rejecting all their uh, you know, mutinous behavior, and, you know, he, he has the iron German will that he's going to uh, enforce discipline at all times, and, you know, it, 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 even right up to the end when he's, you know, he's experiencing voices and He's got a massive, compelling need to go out there and uh, essentially get killed. Mm-hmm. He he says it's you know it's all okay because uh, back at home I'll be venerated and my my children will grow up to be good Germans. Yeah, one thing that I kept having to do when I was dealing with the story with my actors is point out you know this is I mean well one thing I did in this when my adaptation is repeatedly remind the audience that this is World War One and not World War Two. Yes. Because there is a different mindset, even though Lord knows nobody over in America understands it because we don't pay attention. Sorry. So what, <clears throat> to, what did you do exactly? I'm mentioning that it's the, the Kaiser Lech Marina instead mm. of, you know, that it's it's the, the Kaiser's army not. You know that. And and that's the thing because it's so easy for us over here who don't pay attention to other people's histories to sit here and go, Oh, it's Nazis. No, it's not. It's pre, it's not. Well, he, he is, he is uh, certainly of the, of the, you know, SS sort of caricature. Uh, he's not SS obviously, yeah, but he's, sure. he is a, he is a caricature. And I think it, it is kind of interesting that he's got the, you know, he's not just thinking about the inferior uh, foreigners. He's also like he's got the uh, sort of the overreaction inferior where locals. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> he's stupid uh, Rhinelander and primitive 
you know, you're not like us Prussians. <laughs> right? Germany is a whole bunch of states, and uh, you know, prior to uh, you know the 20th century, and so when they're united, they're united, but they're not united in a in a we're all the same, like we're all American sort of way. It's as more as like, opposed to the yeah. Americans who are like, oh, those Californians, they're so weird. <laughs> and them rednecks, oh my God, them stupid rednecks, you know. Oh, come on, well, tell yeah. me. No, no, I, 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 think, I think you have that, but you don't see that in, um, that's not the official policy, right? Oh, like, right, I know. It's not like a sort of a culture that everybody who goes to West Point is, is uh, oppression. <laughs> right, because that and cause, and everybody from the Midwest is really nice. <laughs> Julie just wants to show off her accent. So, yes. So, well. so what's what's the American equivalent to a woman's run in there? Hmm. Yeah. Uh, California, Portland, just, Oregon, just I believe. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> just teach me a lesson. Come on. <laughs> I, I mean, no, no offense. I mean, it's just the 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 niceness. Or it's either yeah, Portland, Oregon, probably. Yeah, <laughs> Prussians would be New York. No, right. the, the upper East class, Coast. New York, not the lower class. <laughs> East Coast, right? Yeah, I don't, I don't think it works perfectly because. Oh no, no, it doesn't. But I mean, the, the <laughs> idea that. You know, if it's if we can't poo-poo the the local character stereotypes even today because we sure. still have them. We don't necessarily use them by. I mean, well, we do do it by area because we do say, "Oh, the California people are all you know pot smoking hippies," and the and the people in Alabama are living in trailers. I mean, it's all it's all stereotypes, and it's not right, but we do it. Well, I think though that it's not even even if we talk about that still happening today, um, you don't ascribe it to you know it's not a racial thing, right? Sure. Uh, I and I think he he's he's more like it's a purity thing. It's a you know it, it's it's all glory to the German state. So he is like a proto-Nazi. He is uh, in some ways, yes. And yes. and and because of that iron German will he's got. He doesn't. He isn't as susceptible to the uh, to the effect of the curse or whatever. And I, I think, you know, but in some ways he is. No, because he was he was evil from the beginning. Because uh, I thought he machine gunned the 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 boats without people in it. Because he doesn't say you know there's people in them. And then uh, later on, I'm like, oh wait a second, uh, <laughs> he just killed all his crew. He just he said I showed them the pistol and that calmed them. Uh, yes, uh, <laughs> not the word for it. And put bodies off the ship, you right. know. But but even before, I mean, in the very opening of the story, I I you know was very careful to keep this in, even though I had to turn it into dialogue. He says in his opening page or so, he says, you know, we destroyed this ship, we took some film of the lifeboat boats escaping. And then as soon as we turned the camera off, we shot all the people. We, we destroyed all the yes. lifeboats. Yeah, I mean, so. that right there tells you he's he's a bastard. <laughs> but uh, he's he also... Says, Our camera missed nothing, and yeah. I regret so fine a reel of film shall never reach Berlin. After we sank the lifeboats with our guns and submerged. 
That's after that we sank, right? But he doesn't say, you know, uh, we we took all the passengers on board because at certain times during the war, um, they unrestricted submarine warfare was in effect, and that meant they could shoot any ship, right? That was their policy. And then yes. after the Lusitania, they changed the policy uh, temporarily, uh, saying that no, not any. Thing was fair game. They said, you know, only military vessels. And uh, they also, there was a policy that obviously this commander is not doing, which was uh, to take the enemy passengers on board, right? Well, but you got to remember That's that... why he's taking that film, to make it show, like, look, we did everything we were supposed to. <laughs> Um, at least officially, right? Yeah, for propaganda purposes. But the other thing is, there's no place on a submarine for lifeboats full of people. I mean, unless you're going to dump them within the next day or so, submarines just, I mean, back then, now this is something yeah, especially, I actually, Especially World War One submarines are yeah. incredibly small and tight. Oh, yeah, and, you know, air, there's not a lot of air. I mean, what do you do? You, you stay on the surface and let them all ride on top holding onto the rails? Like, uh, like, actually, they towed them, generally. Uh, well, um, the... The other thing, though, is that um, I actually, Chaosium, the people who put out Call of Cthulhu, they have put out various supplements. One of the guys I know at their, um, it, who works for Chaosium, uh, he's, or does he work for Pagan Publishing? I think he works for Pagan Publishing, which are the people who put out Unspeakable and and a whole bunch of supplements for Call of Cthulhu. Now I'm totally confused who he was. But anyway, um, he, he did a lot of research into uh in World War One submarines, because they were doing an a, a a game supplement involving this particular story, cool. and um, when I went to him, when I was doing my adaptation, writing my adaptation of the story, I went to him to see, you know, check on the details of the submarine, and apparently, almost every detail of how a submarine works, Lovecraft got wrong. Oh really? Yeah. Well, I, I I can tell you. <laughs> Apparently, things like World War One submarines don't actually have locks that let you out underwater, and they don't actually have you know port. They don't have windows. Oh, that's, that's the biggest issue. Yes. <laughs> I, I was thinking, what what? I I kept thinking they must be on the surface, but he, he says no. There's a dolphin right outside there, and I followed him. Well, if he's underwater, you couldn't see him. I kept thinking that they're on the surface. Yeah. But he's they're definitely underwater. Oh yeah. Yeah. So it's like when I was a kid, I used to think that you know how could you steer a submarine uh, unless you had a big, you know, bubble canopy at the front of the boat, <laughs> so you could see where you're going. Well, that's not how they do it. They do it like it's all it's all dead reckoning, and you know you know where you're going based on the map and your current speed, and and then you come up to get a star fix every once in a while, right? Yes. And but I but I you know I had to go with the where the story was because yeah. otherwise I would have had to rewrite it and, and I rewrite it completely because of the dolphins and I mean they do go out I mean he he has a suit he goes out through the 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 airlock quote unquote you know? well you, it's your special ship it's the U twenty nine you know it's not the U eleven or the specially <laughs> outfitted and, yeah but the the um. Yeah, the it's just funny that Lovecraft would just make up all this stuff for it because, but you but you think back, I mean, where is he going to get U-boat specifications? It's not like he had the internet. Amazing, he did as good a job as he did. I think. Seriously, yeah. he probably just went by the accounts in in you know popular uh, newspapers and magazines and made up everything else. 
it's also very hard to describe what's going on outside of your submarine when you can't see it. True. Uh, so First I had a feeling there was a temple out there. I had no idea. Just, <laughs> but yeah. And the dolphins. I think there's dolphins, and I think there's strange dolphins. Well, you can hear them. I mean, because as far as I understand, I, yeah, that's true. You know, there's but, but sound says, really carries. Yeah. Yeah, but he says there this absolute soundproofed hole. Yeah, that, that there's all sorts. Now that you start pointing it out, there's all sorts of uh, problems with this. Um, but I want to I want to try and just one more time take another stab at what the hell's really going on. Why are they so? There's a a youth who looks Greek or Italian, and uh-huh. he's a victim of the British, says the dude, right? The, our our commander. But clearly, he's not a victim of the the British. What he means no, no, is, no. He means uh, I was forced to kill him. Yeah. I was forced to kill him, and it, isn't it terrible that he had to die because of the stupid British? Um, in the <laughs> You're pocket, making me uh, hit you. You're making me. <laughs> Why are you hitting yourself? That's right, basically. <laughs> uh, so he says, uh, in the pocket of one of the guys, the Kleina character, or Kainza character, he finds a, uh, a, a laurel-wreathed ivory figure. Uh, of a youth, what is this supposed to symbolize? I don't. It's is it like from this underground city? Is that where? Well, if you posit that the city is Atlantis, yeah, that's then what that I, ties I, into the the Greek appearance of the the youth. Right. Okay. You know, and the question is: Is he a sailor who was a follower of this deity, and therefore, because of uh-huh. his death, the deity is punishing them? Or do you posit that because the U-boats have been messing up the oceans, the deity sent somebody to go deliver this special package to them so that they could be cursed? I think didn't he say that he was a he was a pretty youth in the pocket and, of the yeah handsome yeah and and he he assumes that this this man they tossed overboard was the was the leader of this culture down there. Do we? Why do we think that? No, he says uh, the narrator assumes that. Oh, the narrator. Okay. Oh uh, well, I think it was the 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 bust is the the representation of the leader, not the sailor. But maybe no. He, no, he says he 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 vision he sees this he has dreams of the sailor being the leader of all the dead come yeah, back to haunt point. him. Yeah, right. That's right. Okay. Yes. Uh, so the only but other the thing co- I was thinking. Oh, sorry. No, they're connected. They're connected. Uh, only other thing I was thinking of, uh, other than it being Atlantis, which it, uh, I think is m- the more likely scenario, is Edgar Allan Poe has that poem, uh, The City in the Sea, which is the uh, death has, low death has raised himself up a throne. You know, it's, okay. it's a, the underground, uh, sorry, undersea city of the dead. And... Uh, you know, he. It's like uh, that moment in Julie. We were talking about this the other day. Uh-huh. That movie Below. Uh-huh. You know, uh, which I quite like now. Watching it the second time around. Uh, have you seen that movie, Mirko? No. Okay. Uh-huh. Well, um, there's one point in the. It's a sort of a. It's, it's a haunted house on like a submarine. Yeah, basically, and it's actually cool. fairly similar in sort of direction as this this one even though it's set during world war ii on an american submarine um at one point when 
people are going crazy or being haunted on this on the submarine uh the zach galifianakis character says oh i just figured it out we're all dead see we were the ones who were sunk that day (laughs) turns out that's not what's going on but um it's like if that is the interpretation right Mm -hmm. uh the the whole ship is headed to punishment but um this sticking with the um Sticking with the more general Lovecraftian philosophy, it's more likely that uh, it has nothing to do with being punished, right? It's just you were in the wrong place at the wrong time. Yes. Um, and even though the commander's an asshole and he kills most of his crew by himself rather than, you know, the forces of nature uh-huh. uh, killing them. Uh, it's, it's a mercy still. killing. <laughs> 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 That's how he's... Uh, mind you, he's mean, though. Also, like, remember when Kainza is... Um, uh, he's he's saying, we must go now, right? Uh, don't wait till later, he says. Yeah. Um, which I thought was kind of dreamlike, too. You know, like, where he's saying, he is waiting for us. Like, who's he? Is that the, the you? What's going on? Because he did swim away, right? Well, <laughs> the, at the least... Dead body, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> If the youth is waiting for them, uh, you know, he, he doesn't believe it. Uh, our, our hero doesn't believe it. And yet he, he's, he's mean to the kinds of by saying, um, oh, really? Ah, now tell me more. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, sort of teasing, uh, teasing this victim of, of insanity. Very little entertainment at that point on the boat. <laughs> yeah, I I have to admit I I gave him some great lines in that in some of that area um, that I'm quite pleased with. I or actually I gave Kinza some good ones too though. It would when I, when the uh, the captain is talking about how interesting it is that the dolphins can survive at such a deep level. Oh, yeah, look, they don't seem to go up for air or anything. Kids is like, I'm sure the dolphins will appreciate it when you deliver your paper to them. (laughs) 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 Because, you know, it's, it's, well, when I did the adaptation, part of it, the reason for keeping Kinza alive is because of um, audio texture. You know, you have to have the interplay of characters to keep the energy going. And and then I had to do something else after he died. <laughs> so I, I, I ended up, because since, since the captain refuses to be haunted by anyone else, I haunted him by himself. Well, he, he was, he is, in the story, he's haunted by voices uh, near the end, right? Um, he, he... He says the de- demonic voices or something are, are but you know they're not real. I know they're not real, but uh, the demonic laughter which I hear as I write comes only from my own weakening brain. Now the creepy laughter I used in mine is actually just sped up dolphins. Oh, I thought I thought you used the voices of the uh, of the other Pete. Like he was haunted by his. Uh... He's haunted only by his own lines. Yeah, and yeah. What he said that, to but, the. But there crew. is there is this weird. Tr- weird laughter in the background occasionally, oh, okay. and what I did is I sped up dolphins. Ah. So I have <laughs> dolphin dolphin laughter going. <laughs> it was saying, Don't of- go to that city! It's really terrible! Yeah, pretty much. And 
And the funny thing is my entire crew, apart from those two, was played by two different guys who played multiple parts. Which is really, really interesting to do when they're doing an accent and playing multiple parts. I thought they did. Uh, I mean, I, 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 I think Mirko would need to hear it to tell us how authentic it sounded. But I thought it was pretty damn good. Uh, I was, I was, I had forgotten that it was you playing the uh, the the second in command, and then the, the other guy, uh, the main character, uh, he his German accent sounded pretty good to me. Yeah, he definitely had that upper class snotty sound for the Prussian. <laughs> whether it, whether it sounds Prussian or not, it sounded German with a snotty accent, so it worked. <laughs> so I have to check it out. Definitely. You'll, you'll have to tell you'll have to tell me how hard you laugh at our accents. <laughs> um, just I, I assume that that's the same as I trying to speak English. <laughs> I don't think I don't think your English is bad at all. No, it's, it's, I like no, your no, accent. The accent. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you. <laughs> well, you know, at the at the Renaissance fairs, people think they're funny. They come up to me. I haven't done it in years, but back at the time, they'd come up to me and hear me doing my German accent. They would come up and and start talking to me and say, "Oh, sprechen Sie Deutsch?" <laughs> and I would go, and I and I I memorized a chunk of German that I could just speak back at them, so that if they don't actually speak German and they're just being funny. <laughs> Then they they go oh okay and if they do speak German then they will laugh very hard because of what I say because what I say is come on and rock me Amadeus yeah that's, that's <laughs> he was an Austrian well but you know yes <laughs> no, it's, it's great it's great I love it. It's just, Could you please and, repeat it? What? Could you please repeat this? Well, you'll have the recording. <laughs> so, um, did you guys do the math on the on the longitude latitude thing? Uh, you know, he says. Of course, that's says, the first thing that would occur to me. <laughs> well, um, uh, it's ever since uh, we did the island of Doctor Moreau, I've been reading a lot of uh, nautical stories. Um, <laughs> You know, a lot of William Hope Hodgson and that sort of thing. And most of the time, they don't give the latitude and longitude of of where where things sure. are. Um, but I'm just going to see if I can find the, uh, the latitude and longitude of this one. So it's 20 degrees north, and then well, and he's see. guessing by the end. Uh, that's true, but uh, I, I think it is off the coast of Yucatan. Um. West thirty-five degrees. We so, don't have any minutes, but well, you, um, you also though, if if Lovecraft was aiming for Atlantis as a concept, yeah, what's well, in you know, the Atlantic Ocean at least? <laughs> Atlantis is Atlantis was very big um, just prior to Lovecraft. I mean, it was in the Victorian era. There was huge. There were books written on Atlantis and all this stuff. It was it was like the Bermuda Triangle kind of of its day. I mean, everybody. You know, had some awareness of it, and so he may really have been uh-huh. trying to play off of what had been written about it. Interesting. Uh, I get I get um, the annotated H.P. Lovecraft and Penguin Classics uh, with annotations by S.T. Joshi, and he says uh, this location would be in the middle of the North Atlantic Ocean, approximately 800 miles northwest of the Cap Verde Island. Cap Verde Island. 
That's what he said. North Atlantic. Yeah, well, it's definitely yeah. North Atlantic. Yeah, right. It's, uh, because it's World War II. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, don't let anybody try and tell you it's in the Bermuda Triangle, because the Bermuda Triangle <laughs> hadn't been invented yet. All right. Yes, and, and Lovecraft, when he gives um, exact exact uh, coordin co coordinates, right? Mm -hmm. um, he's, he's very, very exact with that. He looks it up and, and stuff. So I, probably I, he's... He's assuming about Atlantis, and of course he rejects this theory of uh, sunken continent, but he uses this a lot. He uses a lot of uh, Things sunk in the philosophical ocean. Uh, sources, yeah, mm -hmm. um, like Atlantis or the continent of Mu, Mu M-U. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, with uh, the Maria. Yeah, right. So, uh, well, I, I thought, you know, it, was, it, it didn't say a continent exactly down there. But there was a river, anyways, right? There was an old riverbed, and sunk. It was a sunken plateau or something, some sort of sunken island, at least. Could be Rilea. <laughs> Wrong ocean, isn't it? Pacific. Oh, yeah. I'm just... Yeah, right. Oh, it's but... it's it's the cousin of Cthulhu. Hey, may I rise? May I rise also? No, go away. Go away into the Atlantic Ocean. I want to rise. No. Stars are not you, right yet. But, <laughs> but he, he <laughs> sorry, but he uses this setting as well in Dagon. Yeah, Dagon you know, on, I really like, like that. I, 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 and that that could be like the the ship that they sunk right before. Uh, oh, mind you, isn't that the Pacific as well, or is it the Atlantic? I can't remember. It it's is World a War wartime one, though. story. It is something to do with wartime, so it probably is the Atlantic. I think he was. I think he was sunk. Um, the main character was sunk, and he. He well, he was picked up by he was picked up by the enemy ship, and treated as a prisoner of war. Yeah, yeah he was, and he was he was treated very good, and he was it, yeah. the narrator in Dagon is an uh, Amer American narrator, I guess, and uh, he was captured by a German sea raider. It's uh, it's Dagon. one of Lovecraft's wartime stories. There's got to be an anthology of those. <laughs> with two pieces we've got right? at least two <laughs> two we've stories two and, and one poem one or two poems there we go and yeah. a couple of oh yeah a couple of uh, propagandistic essays this has been the SFF audio podcast please join us at www.sffaudio.com <laughs>